Well, I invite your attention to the public reading of the word of our great God found in Isaiah chapter 44 and verses 1 to 5. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jehusharun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. The one will say, I am the Lord's. And that one will call him on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. And will name Israel's name with honor. May God bless the reading of the scripture. Let's now go again to the Lord in prayer as we remember the needs of the saints for the glory of God. Our Father, we come to acknowledge uh, the greatest need of all of life and that we would know the one true living God and draw near to him all the days of our lives that we might show to the world that we have been redeemed by the power and the mercy and the loving kindness of a God who has blessed us forever in Jesus Christ, his only son. We come, Lord, to pray for our families and ask thy presence to be among them as they return home this day and every day of the week. Uh, May God be remembered. May God be praised. May he be blessed. May love abound between husband and wife. May children experience the nurture and the fear of the Lord. May husbands lead in prayer, asking God for daily bread. And may wives adorn their hands to prepare their homes with the grace of God, that neighbors and friends might know alike that they know the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his grace. Uh, Lord, we remember those of our congregation who are sick, uh, who are fighting illnesses of body and mind. May they place their firm and sure hope on the one who is the great and only healer. And even death itself is the greatest of all healing because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, Grant, Lord, that they might treasure the day in which thou wilt fix everything that sin made wrong. And they will praise the one true God in the fullness of body, bodily, and mental health. Grant them, Lord, sure and certain hope to look for that day. And for may all of us, Lord, as we experience the ravages of the fall and as we see things taken away from us that we have cherished, may we cherish all the more the coming of Christ and the joy everlasting of the people of God in the presence with Jesus Christ, our great and only Savior. We pray, Lord, for our young people who are easily enticed by the things of life that glitter, May they come to know from the scriptures that it is only the world and everything in the world will be torched. We understand the text, Lord. May they take it near to their heart that the grass withers, the flower fades. The word God stands forever. Grant, Lord, thy protection upon them from being lackadaisical. Uh, Entice them to be vigilant, to grow up in the faith and to know that the scripture is true, that for the man or the woman or the young child, boy or girl,
who sows the wind will certainly reap the whirlwind. And we pray, Lord, for any of our midst, and certainly all of us at different times in our lives are lonely and discouraged. May we remember the captain of our salvation, uh, who of all of us, as the God-man, was terribly lonely and terribly discouraged, but he drew near to the will of the Father. He planted his hope, his sure, certain life based upon the work that thou didst give him to do. May we do the same. And may our loneliness and our discouragements fade and evaporate by thy good and sovereign good pleasure and our enjoyment in the living God. Uh, we pray, Lord, for any who are here this day who know not the Savior. Grant them no rest or peace until they come to the fullness of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, we know, Lord, for certainty that there are some in our midst who are engaged in law enforcement or who uh, belong to the armed forces of the United States of America. We're thankful for them. We ask that thou would protect them as they discharge their duties and may they in grace look to the living God to defend them and protect them as they are about their business of serving our nation and our communities. Lord, there is so much more to pray for, but we leave off now for the chief need that all of us have, and that is we give attention to the word of God, that we might draw near to it by faith, we might understand the great works of God and our redemption in our care, in our providence, in our defense, so that we might, having left this place, would go away with the presence of the Lord shining upon us and the glory of God being carried throughout our community and the streets in which we live. And to that end, we plead the name of Christ, our only Redeemer. Amen. Early on in scripture, we read what in my mind are the saddest words of all of the Bible. He, namely God, drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. By the way, as a quick theological reminder, when Adam was driven out of the garden, we were with him. Conceptually, God is going to drive Israel out of the garden land into captivity. Theologically, the Puritans have, have captured uh, for us something of uh, this sentiment in the words that all mankind by their fall, lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries in this life to death itself and the pains of hell forever. I cannot but read those words and be chilled in my soul because of everything that it means. But the great question that arises from those words, either in the picture of Adam being driven out of the garden or the theological interpretation of it in the Shorter Catechism, is simply this. Is it permanent? Have we lost communion with God forever? Are we destined throughout all of our lives to live east of Eden without any hope whatsoever? 
in the sad world in which we live because of the fall? Is it perpetual? And the prophet Isaiah will answer that question for us this morning in the verses that we have just read in the words of the Lord. From the judgment of the previous text, God responds to reassure the nations of their status in his plan. So he commands them to hear. The Hebrew word of the command is Shema. Reminds me of the great Shema of Israel. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you know what follows that. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength. And so perhaps it is a conceptual reminder that they are to hear the word of the Lord. And the content of what they are here is, is of course, their commission is the servant of God. He calls them the servant. All of the people of God throughout the ages of the history of the church, and Israel as well, have been commissioned as the servants of God. We have a particular task that God has given to us, and that is that we are to serve him with our mind, our strength, and that is what we are to hear, the great Shema of Israel. The peril is, it is I have chosen you. God has elected us. Our election in Jesus Christ from all eternity is purposeful. It's to fulfill a divine intent as the sons of God. It is a statement of God's love for us, but it is also a statement of commission that we are to advance his kingdom as his sons. Furthermore, God says, I made you and I formed you from the womb. Uh, it's a reminder to me of the great commission of the prophet Jeremiah. So critical because his life is to be dispatched in sorrowful service to the nation of Israel that had turned away from God. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. And I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It's a reminder that you and I are prophets in the sense that we carry the word of God to the nations. And God elected and created and formed us to be his mouthpiece to the world at large. It's the language of creation. So at the end, of course, God has created us as his servants to expand his kingdom by the sharing of his word. Again, creation and commissioning go together as does the divine promise. God tells Israel, I will help you. Commissioning is very difficult. It engages a difficult task of advancing the kingdom in a world that is opposed to God. And so the divine promise becomes critical. God does not leave us alone to our own devices. He is with us. He will help us. Remind you of the great commissioning to the church, Matthew 28. Go, baptizing, teaching, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That there is no corner of life that you could ever repair to or run to or predicament that you could ever find yourself in. That God would not be present with you to help you to fulfill the commission that he's given to you. And thus, in light of everything God does to reassure the nation of Israel, or perhaps to reassure us, he says, do not fear. 
their fear is linked to captivity and perpetual judgment and loss of covenant privilege. Again, the question is, will it be perpetual? And here, of course, we know the answer. God is saying, no, it's not perpetual. It's not forever. God is reassuring them that he is not finished with them. It's a great promise for all of us. Perhaps this morning you come to church and you're discouraged. Maybe the events of life and all of its exigencies in this sad world have beat you up in whatever uh, form, either literally or spiritually. But again, God is not finished and he is never finished with his people, forming them and shaping them as his servants. Failure is rarely final, and judgment is not always fatal. If you find yourself discouraged and beat up, read the great promises and the statements of God in the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus. The stirring reminder that we are the elect of God, beloved from all eternity. And therefore, God is with us in all of the exigencies of life and will never leave us or desert us. And of course, the promise is pledged from eternity. It cannot fail because God cannot lie and he is always with us. And so the first couple of verses of our text is again a reassurance of the nation that God is not finished with them. That even that they are going to their Babylonian captivity, God still has a plan. He still has a purpose. Uh, And from that plan and from that purpose, in verses 3 to 5, he promises them restoration. If you will, what follows beginning in verses 3 to 5 is reasons for reassurance. And it is the promise of divine intervention. Uh, that God as creator can intervene at any point in your life and fix anything that he so wills to fix. And if he nils to fix it, it has a divine purpose and charge and eternal reason locked in the mystery of the providence of God in his infinite wisdom. Again, God is going to intervene in the life of the nation of Israel. And I tell you this morning that God is going to intervene in your life in whatever station you so fulfill. And so again, if you look at verse 3, because I will pour water out on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. The imagery, of course, is that of the Garden of Eden that absent uh, the presence of God is turned into a place full of ugly bushes and briars and brambles and an utter wasteland, but God is going to work and do something incredibly rich in the provision of his grace. It's going to begin again and turn judgment into the blessings of transformation. Again, hear the word of the Lord, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Very rich Uh, parallelism here that uh, significant that we grasp what is occurring. Pouring out water on thirsty uh, land or ground is parallel to the phrase, I will pour out my spirit and blessings on your descendants. In other words, the first is defined by the second. The visual imagery of watering a dry and parched ground is really defined or interpreted by the pouring out of the spirit. 
And the blessings of water are symbolic of divine intervention in the Spirit of God. I've always been somewhat enamored by the text in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. and uh, the, the Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, God is likened to uh, an eagle that is hovering over its young. And so God hovers over his church and he's able by his divine power to intervene at any point that he so wills. And if he wills not to intervene, that in of itself is providential and locked in the mysteries of the wisdom of our great God who is omniscient and does everything for the good of his people. The reality that God of the Spirit is going to work again. It's a promise that we are never left bereft of the Spirit of God and the divine ability to come and to engage our lives at whatever point we find ourselves at. Uh, because judgment or discipline, if you will, is never, never final for the people of God. And of course, failure is rarely fatal. And so here we have a promise in the riches of the imagery of the watering, if you will, of a garden, that God's going to intervene again. Now, the effect of God's intervention is in verses 4 to 5. Again, when God gives his spirit, things happen, because the spirit always works effectually, efficaciously, when he comes to work in the lives of his people. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. Uh, the results, again, of the work of the Spirit are twofold. First, they will spring up like poplars by the streams of water. Do you catch the allusion, if you will, to Psalm 1-3? That the man of God will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. His leaf will not wither, and whatever he does, he will prosper. It's the imagery of God at work in the midst of his people captured in the imagery of a garden reminding us that having been driven out of the garden it's not perpetual, it's not forever. God is going to work again and effect restoration. That the godly are likened to fruitful trees for the glory of God. But you remember the reading of the Psalter, do you not, of the call to worship, but the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that would be driven away, driven out of the garden perpetually, never to return. That the angel with his flaming source will forever throughout all of time prevent them from entering into communion with God. They'll be driven away from his presence throughout all eternity. But it is not so for the godly because God will cause their lives to be like a tree and they will flourish and render fruit for the fullness of the kingdom and the advancement of the glory of God throughout the world. You probably don't like the imagery of being called a tree. But in God's grace and God's mercy you are. And he comes and he waters and he prunes that there might be more fruit for the glory of his presence and the advancement of his kingdom. We are like trees planted by the river of water. And the river of water is nothing more, nothing less than the spirit of God who gives us life and who fructifies us for his enjoyment. This uh, imagery is captured throughout all the scriptures. I'm going to look at a couple of texts. The first being Psalm uh, 
92, the 12th verse. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. And the imagery, of course, is uh, that of Isaiah chapter 44 of Psalm 1, but it's also the imagery of the Garden of Eden and God at work again to restore his people and to return them to what they were originally intended to be as trees planted by the river of water whose leaf will not wither and whatever we do for the glory of God will prosper. In other words, casting out of the garden is not perpetual. The work of God by the Spirit in full restoration has begun in the work of the grace of God. It's interesting that the prophet Isaiah has already alluded to this majestic work of God in the 32nd chapter uh, of his prophecy, which we are studying. Isaiah chapter 32 and verses 13 to 15. For the land of my people in which thorns and briars shall come up, yea, for all the joyful houses and for the jubilant city, because the palace has been abandoned, the populated city forsaken. Hill and watchtower have become caves forever, a delight for wild donkeys and a pasture for flocks. So again, the imagery is there is they're going to be driven out of the garden land, away from the garden land, separated from communion with God and the temple eventually destroyed. What happens when God leaves or the people of God are driven away from God? They become weeds, thorns, thistles, ugly landscape that anyone would turn away from. God, of course, never turns his his back upon his people. He comes again. Verse 15, Isaiah chapter 32, until the Spirit is poured out upon you from on high and the wilderness becomes a fertile field and the fertile field is considered as a forest. God is promising the people in Isaiah chapter 32, they're going to be cast out of the garden land, but God's going to enable them by his power to return. And what was once a bramble bush will turn into a luxuriant, fruitful tree as God comes again in the presence of his spirit. In the old covenant, God promised a fruitful Edenic land on the condition of faithfulness to the covenant. But their inability to deliver is resolved by the promise of the coming of the spirit of God who will in divine grace fructify his people and effect restoration that embraces the reality of a return to the garden from which Adam was driven and in a renewed creation. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 12. And by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows in the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Ultimately, of course, fulfilled in heaven, which we will look at momentarily.
It's a great reminder that the failure of Adam does not stop God from restoring his people and returning them to full communion with divine presence and making their lives to be like a luxuriant garden. All of civilization tries to imitate what God is going to do for his people. You know, one of the great wonders of the world was Nebuchadnezzar in his great city of hanging gardens, an attempt to counterfeit what only God can do. Some of you, unlike me, I say to my shame, love to work in gardens. Uh, you love to pull the weeds and uh, maybe prune a rose bush that it might bear more roses. Uh, maybe spread fertilizer so that which is brown and ugly will turn green and verdant and luxurious. The world can only imitate that. God makes it for sure and true and certain. The great garden imageries that the worlds try to make is only a facade. Uh, what the world does will eventually fade and wither. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. It's a reminder that only God can ultimately fix the heart and ultimately fix society and ultimately fix nations. And what he will do for his people is restore them fully and irrevocably and the fullness that was once known as the Garden of Eden. And we will be returned in full enjoyment and communion with our God. The the second effect of the outpouring of the Spirit, the first being captured in the image of a garden, is an identification with the Lord. Again, from the standpoint of parallelism, that is really part of fruitfulness. Again, language is a high metaphor that we're going to bear fruit. And what does that mean? Well, part of it is identification with the Lord. Uh, in other words, the Spirit renews us to the end that we claim God as our Father. But there's something else here that's in the text that's most important. Uh, we claim His people as our people. Again, Isaiah chapter 44 in the fifth verse, this one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. It's a claim of loyalty and commitment to God in contrast to what? Idols. The failure of Israel, idolatry. It's the failure of our culture today, idolatry. John Calvin once said that the heart of man is an idol factory. We produce them by the boatloads full. We worship the wrong gods, and we worship sometimes the right God in the wrong way, and it's all incredible idolatry. But God's going to come by the presence of his Spirit and fix that and create what is true, expressed in a fruitful, verdant, purposeful, lush garden for his enjoyment and for the advancement of his kingdom. This, by the way, could be a parody against... Uh, the ancient practice of branding or tattooing the name of false gods on one, on one hand. You remember in the text that 
that one will write upon his, his, uh, uh, his hand belonging to the Lord. Uh, I think the ultimate parody of that is uh, what Satan does to imitate God. Uh, you recall perhaps in Revelation chapter 13 that he causes his children uh, uh, to write his number upon their foreheads and upon their hands. Exactly the great danger in the world in which we live, that everything that Satan does is to imitate the divine, to counterfeit what is true and sure and certain and what only God can do. But the imitation will not work because God, of course, will destroy those who belong to the beast. Again, the language is spiritual with a greater reality of that of genuine confession of loyalty to the God of heaven and, and most importantly, if you will, in light of our own age, uh, his people on this earth. Again, look at the, the verbal actions in verse, verse 5. Uh, this one will say, that one will call, another will write, and lastly will name. But look at the object, the object. Say, I am the Lord's. Call on the name of Jacob. The parallel, write on his hand, belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. The parallelism of the second line is an identification with the people of God. We forget that in the life of the church. I'm a Christian, I, I name God's name. But I don't have anything to do with his people. I, no, the church is a place where there's sinners and hypocrites, and uh, I'm, I'm above all that. I'm, no, it's not the way it works. When God works in the lives of his people, he not only creates a loyalty to himself, he creates the loyalty to his people. The church, Jesus Christ, is the Lord of the church. He died for his church. He gave his life for the church. It was ugly. It was messy. You and I wouldn't have done it, but he did. And he turns what is ugly and messy into the pristine beauty of a godly bride. Be very careful about saying, I call upon the name of God, but I have nothing to do with the church. It's a television program I'm somewhat fond of. I'm not sure what the title is. I think it's called Bush People. Just family, kind of a large family. They live in the bush in Alaska. Incredible hardships. I, I can't imagine how difficult that is. Because Alaska is a difficult place to fashion a life apart from civilization. But they do. So that's the point of the television program. Very interesting to me that a couple of the women in this, uh, the bush people wear crosses. Uh, every now and then you hear them say things like, well, we have faith, and uh, God will see us through it, and, and uh, it's going to be okay. Well, I just, I still live on a turnip truck. I take that to mean that they confess to know the living God. They call upon his name. They use his name. You see the disjoint? There's no church in the bush of Alaska. That's the contradiction. You can name the name of God all you want, but if you withdraw from his people, 
you are saying Christ died for his church, but I want nothing to do with his church. When the Spirit of God is poured out, we call upon the name of God and we also align ourselves and call upon his people. That's the point of Jacob and Israel, the people of God. Again, great reminder that they both go together. I understand one is causative. God gives us new hearts. We love him. We also love his sons and daughters. We align with him. That God intervenes to renew his people spiritually to the end that they become loyal to him and to his people. So the imagery of Psalm 1, that the godly man is like a tree planted by the river of water and his leaf will not fade and whatever he does prospers, includes not only serving God and worshiping the one true God, it includes serving the people of God and worshiping with them. You cannot separate the two. You cannot separate Jesus Christ who loves his church and the work that he does and the person that he is. I find that epidemic in our culture. I think we've made an art form out of it. Be very careful about dividing yourself from the people of God whom Jesus Christ loved to the uttermost ends of the earth from all eternity. To name one is to name the other and draw near to both and identify with Christ by loving his people. Well, the when of this restoration of the garden has, has begun. Begun in the spirit. In my own understanding, uh, the prophet Isaiah is alluding uh, to the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, in verses 28 to 29. Isaiah says God's going to pour out his spirit. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, and even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. I'm just simply establishing that Isaiah is alluding to Joel. Uh, and of course, Peter cites Joel too in its fulfillment on the day of Pentecost. You have your New Testament's Acts chapter 2. Is a citation from Joel chapter 2 of which the prophet Isaiah is alluding to. What I'm suggesting to you is Isaiah chapter 44 is fulfilled in a beginning way in the coming of the Spirit. Uh, Acts chapter 2 in verses 16 to 18. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. In other words, Luke is saying this, this is that. What happened on the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 as well as Isaiah chapter 44. This will be in the last days, God says, I'll pour forth my spirit upon all mankind. I'm not going to read the rest of the text because of time. This is a reminder that there's prophetic fulfillment in Acts 2 of what? Joel 2 in Isaiah chapter 44. 
In other words, the work of fructification, the work of restoration, the work of God beginning again in his work of a garden has started in the life of the church and began on the day of Pentecost in the outpouring of the Spirit. The eschatological restoration foretold by the prophets has started. It's very instructive that Acts chapter 2 has its immediate fulfillment on ethnic Jews in the land of Israel. Doesn't stop there, does it? Uh, goes beyond uh, Acts chapter 10 and verse 45. And all the circumcised believers, in other words, ethnic Jews who were Christians, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also. God pouring out his spirit on all mankind to begin again the work of ultimate restoration, started in the outpouring of the Spirit. The greatest of all returns to the Garden of Eden has started as God fructifies his people and reminds us that the restoration, return to the Garden, communion with God, has started in the Spirit. I mean, there's something of this in the language of uh, the Apostle Paul uh, who speaks of the work of the Gospel in his ministry in churches in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, last two words of verse 5, the gospel, verse 6, which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. In other words, the fullness of the reality of Psalm 1, the tree planted by the rivers of water has started in the gospel and the planting of the gospel among Paul's churches. Verse 10, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit. The fruit tree, God at work, God has started. We have been driven away perpetually and now God has come to recover us. He started again. I'm going to go back where Adam once was and regretted that he ever had to leave. The power of God and the work of the Spirit planting us like trees by the Spirit that we would bear fruit for his glory and the sharing of the gospel. It's something of uh, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, Paul, uh, I planted, he's a farmer, I planted, Apollos watered like the Spirit. God was causing the growth. The great imagery of a gardener in a garden capturing something of the essence of Genesis 1, Psalm 1. And the great words of the prophet saying he's going to start again and plant trees and they'll bear fruit, and their fruit will not wither, and whatever they do will prosper. I'm just telling you that eschatological reality has started. By the way, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it only starts in the work of the Spirit in your own heart, uh, pursuing you to see that you've been driven out of the garden Unless you come to Christ, you'll be driven perpetually out of the garden, never to return. Come to Christ, and may the Spirit so work in your life that you will come. The climax of all this, of course, is not yet. I mean, the when has started, but uh, has not reached its full terminal point. Let's read that a full terminal point in 
uh, Revelation 22, verses 1 to 4. Uh, I began in my introduction by saying this greatest of all questions, is it perpetual? Have we forever been driven out of the garden? We have an answer in part, but here's the total answer. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 to 4. And he showed me a river, the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. The fullness of the realities of naming God written on their foreheads, of course, again, high metaphor of the fullness of the identification now made complete when we are planted perpetually, never to be driven out again of the eschatological garden, and God is with us and we are with him. The language of the river, tree of life, bearing fruit, and the leaves of the Trees speak to reestablishing the people in the Garden of Eden throughout all time, never to be driven away again. Sin, if you will, totally eradicated. What a blessed day that must be. Totally eradicated by the Spirit of God in his working. Oh, what a day. I know in our culture we dream of OU winning the national championship. Oklahoma State winning the Big 12 championship, or whatever we dream of. Never lose sight of the ultimate dream. Restoration fully, completely, totally, and forever. The greatest question of all of life is not, not will I survive cancer, not will I psychologically be able to deal with the loss of limbs or the loss of mind or friends or spouses, but will God bring me back forever? Now you know the answer from Isaiah 44, the fullness of the grace of God and the presence of his spirit. When the effects of the fall are perpetually over and done with forever, the redeemed sons of Adam back in the garden. And God in his grace and the outpouring of the Spirit has made it so. The goodness of his grace to his people. He does not leave them to themselves to wallow about in a grassless eternity full of weeds and bramble bushes and pain and sorrow. He comes, restores them, fixes them, and sets everything in motion to the end, that once they were east of Eden, and now they're back forever. And so the prophet says, do not fear. I tell you the same thing. Do not fear. If God fixes the most important thing in all of life, maybe the fears that we have about security, about our jobs, about our health, can fade just a bit and the fullness of the glory of God in its grip upon our lives will grow all the more. We know it's begun because we have the Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance and our fruitful lives. It's a pledge that will eventuate 
in the pristine beauty of creation, once lost but now restored in the fullness of the beauty of God. And as the Garden of Genesis 1 is merely prototypical of a greater garden, Revelation chapter 22, meaning that full communion with God will be restored and the curse totally cured forever. It is our reminder that it all begins upon the gospel. To eat of the fruit tree who is Jesus Christ, whose leaves will heal us, whose fruit will restore us. The word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. Everything about our lives will wither and fade. Only what God will do by the power of his spirit will last forever. His word is true and sure. Draw near to him. Give your life to serving his people and his gospel. And you will be that tree planted by the rivers of water and your leaves will not wither. And everything that you do will prosper for the glory of God. And God one day will come and replant you in his eschatological garden and you will be with him time without end.